Hello, and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. Recovery and resolution planning has been a dominant theme since the recent financial crisis, and the focus of late has really been centered around central counterparties, or CCPs, as their viability and continued operation in the event of a market crisis is absolutely crucial. Now, as such, the market recognizes the need for CCPs to adopt a recovery and resolution framework, dictating both a process to recover from a market event, but also to instigate a resolution plan should recovery not be possible. Of course, agreeing on a recovery and resolution framework is easier said than done, and there's been much debate as to what the framework should look like and what it should entail. We're focusing on this topic in this podcast today because there's been some recent developments in the industry, and in particular, I'm referring to the fact that ISTA has published a paper proposing consistent recovery and continuity frameworks for central counterparties. The paper follows a publication of its principles for CCP recovery released back in November 2014, which called for greater CCP transparency, use of standardized stress tests, and significant CCP skin in the game. Now, also, this ISTA paper is very much in line with the recommendations made by the CPMI IOSCO back in October 2014. In this podcast, we spoke to Michael Beaton, Managing Partner of Derivatives Risk Solutions, about some of the details of the ISTA proposed framework and why recovery and resolution planning is so important for CCPs and for the financial industry generally. Here is DerivSource reporter Lynn Strong and Dodds speaking to Michael Beaton. Hi, we're here today to discuss the ISDA's paper proposing consistent recovery and continuity frameworks for CCPs. First question that I really would like to ask is, how serious is the risk of CCPs defaulting? I think we have to recognize that this has happened before. We just have to look back to, for instance, 1974. We did have a CCP default in Paris on margin calls related to sugar futures. 1983, the Kuala Lumpur Commodities Clearinghouse, we had a default there. 1987, Hong Kong Futures Exchange failed as a result of the 87 stock market crash. And a lot more recently, just December 2013, KRX, the Clear Exchange, they had a wobble after a trading error by Hanmag Securities. And this resulted in uh, all members losing a portion of their default fund contribution. So it's definitely happened before. Having said that, CCPs, well, such as ClearNet, LTH ClearNet, they seem to handle the situation quite well during the Lehman collapse in 2008. Apparently, LTH ClearNet used up only a third of its initial margin capacity at this time. Do you need to bear in mind that the dynamics of the market itself are shifting? So we have a greater number of CCPs. This reflects the general shift towards central clearing. And we have Clearing members, which are members of multiple CCPs. In addition, the requirements to qualify as a clearing member are being made easier to comply with. And of course, if one of those clearing members defaults, you have the prospect that the default management process of multiple CCPs gets triggered simultaneously. This, in turn, threatens to put a greater amount of stress on the remaining clearing members, which, at least in theory, could result in a kind of a failure of more clearing members, almost creating a kind of a domino effect. Whilst in theory, the CCP should be better able to handle the risk than the banks, we also have to remember that we're actually focusing more risk on these CCPs. This, of course, also reflects the general shift towards central clearing. 
So in effect, those two factors may cancel each other out. On the one hand, we've got rules being passed to make sure the CCPs are more robust, additional margin, more thought being given to things like default waterfalls. But on the other hand, those CCPs are actually quite thinly capitalised, and this course is a constant gripe of the clearing members. So all in all, do I think that a CCP default is likely? Probably not, if we're talking about the balance of probabilities, although that assessment is actually fairly in the balance. Do I think that it's possible? Absolutely. Perhaps more to the point, do I think that we've reached the point where a taxpayer-funded bailout will never need to happen again? Absolutely not. Against that comment, the proposed framework reiterates the preference for recovery over resolution. What impact do you think that will have? Really, I think, yeah, it does emphasize the benefits of recovery over resolution. And in terms of the impact, it's generally recognized that for any financial market infrastructure, of which CCPs are the most important, resolution itself is never going to be a good thing. If you think about a CCP going into default, it's likely that you're going to have a collapse in the price of the transactions that are executed through that CCP. It's unlikely that you'll be able to transfer a business to a purchaser. It's unlikely that one CCP is going to step in and buy the business of a failing CCP in the way that perhaps Barclay stepped in and bought the failing business of Lehman and Nomura stepped in and bought the failing business of Lehman. They're set up operationally quite differently, at least they tend to be, and it makes that kind of transition from a bridge institution to a new purchaser that much more difficult. And of course, trading would likely cease. Unless, for instance, you had a government guarantee the CCP, which, of course, then unfortunately takes you back to square one in terms of avoiding taxpayer-funded bailouts. You'd like you to have contractual tear-ups, margin haircutting. These would ensue anyway. And, of course, these are the type of measures that it's being discussed about instituting in relation to a recovery. So it's not like you would avoid these things anyway. And, of course, there may be no other venues to execute and clear certain types of trade. If you think about it, the market is still very, very vertically integrated. It tends to be what you execute, you clear through certain CCPs and those CCPs only. So the emphasis on recovery over resolution is absolutely the right one to have. The fallback to actually resolving one of these CCPs will be in absolutely nobody's interest. And I think in fairness to ISDA, in their paper, they're very upfront in recognizing this fact. Does that mean then that if ACCP successfully handles its default management process, the resolution authority would not have to step in. What would the role be of the resolution authority then? Yes, that is right. I think if a CCP successfully implemented default management procedure, then a resolution authority would not have to formally step in. You would never reach that point where a resolution authority has to take the view whether or not a CCP is test is kind of failing or likely to fail. I think in practice, if you have a CCP, given the focus of systemic risk on CCPs going forward, if you have one that is troubled, a resolution authority will undoubtedly be one of the key players consulted during the whole default management process. Their voice is going to be heard loud and clear. It's just that that voice will be one that was informal. It'll be one that was being consulted we won't hopefully reach the point where the resolution authority has to step in and take the reins and govern the process going forward. The proposed recovery framework outlined in this paper offers a comprehensive and effective set 
of detailed measures to ensure a CCP's ongoing viability. Is it enough and why? And if not, what do you think should be added? Well, I think the first thing you have to remember is that these measures really only reduce the probability of a CCP failure. By and large, they don't address the impact of a CCP failure. But with that in mind, yes, in theory, they should be enough, at least in most circumstances. In practice, however, I think it's probably important to look at the ability of a CCP to actually execute its default management plan. Generally, this requires non-defaulting clearing members to second traders to the CCP to analyze defaulted positions and to manage the auction process, which is obviously central to the CCP's prospect of recovery. Now, if you bear in mind, as the number of CCPs increase, currently is, the potential squeeze on resources becomes more acute. And this is why, at the minute, CCPs have traders from each bank basically on a kind of a rotor system for being seconded to each one of the CCPs. And of course, as I mentioned before, a big clearing member which defaults is likely to be a member of quite a few of these CCPs. So you have the prospect that if more than one default management process is being conducted at any one time, it's likely to place significant burden on clearing members, which are members of all of those CCPs. Also, the numbers of clearing members is growing as the capital requirements to be a clearing member are coming down. We talked about this before. Of course, as it makes it easier to become a clearing member, it's at least arguable that this increases the likelihood of a default as well. As you start to go kind of down that curve in kind of size and resources of banks, it may be that they're just simply less well-equipped to, for instance, participate in the auction process following a clearing member default. And there are other factors which are relevant as well. So, for instance, if the defaulting clearing member also provides other services to the CCP, um, it might render that CCP particularly vulnerable to the default. And examples would include, for instance, if that clearing member is a liquidity provider, or perhaps the depository bank, or maybe a custodian, perhaps something like the settlement bank. But it doesn't even really stop there. So as you go on, you need to bear in mind that the waterfall itself, depending on how it's structured, depending on how it's designed, that can actually place too much burden on clearing members and itself, in theory at least, could act as a vehicle for the transmission of systemic risk. If, for instance, it places too much of a burden on a clearing member and results in the insolvency of that clearing member, that doesn't really help anybody. So will we ever get away completely from the theory of state-backed guarantees, even if they're only implicit? It's just my opinion, but I think it's doubtful. I think these institutions really are the new too big to fail. As we discussed before, resolution may not be a realistic option. For instance, it's not as easy to transfer the business of one CCP to another. But that means that when recovery fails, as it could, then there really aren't that many options left but state-backed support. That, in turn, means it's probably necessary for the industry as a whole to do some more research into really kind of almost thinking the unthinkable and planning for CCP resolution. What can you do in these circumstances? Well, some options would be to include stress testing of CCP financial resources. Regulators on both sides of the Atlantic are already talking about the need for this. Higher levels of pre-funding, greater contributions by CCPs. There's also been some talk about separate recapitalization funds funded by the CCPs and the clearing members, which are kind of held in a scrow and which is used basically as money that's bailed in in the event that the CCP reaches the end of its default waterfall. Last but not least, there has been some interesting talk about possibly insurance policies 
being placed at the end of the default waterfall as a kind of a, a last firewall, if you like. Whether or not that would actually exacerbate the issue around interconnectedness and contagion, well, that's to be seen. In general, I think what we need to take away from all of this is to bear in mind that systemic risk can be transferred. It's kind of arguable whether or not it can be reduced, but it certainly can't be eliminated. And the clearing model that we're working towards really concentrates credit risk on a kind of an inchoate bilateral network with large clusters of risk. And we're moving away from that towards a more explicit kind of almost a hub and spoke model. The result of which is that risk is massively concentrated on a very, very small number of names. Now, a decentralized network is arguably more robust than a hub and spoke model. Certainly, open systems are generally regarded as more robust closed systems. The central clearing model, fortunately, is a closed system. You certainly have that kind of single glaring point of failure. And there's really no escape from that. And so, in some do I think it'll be enough? I think it goes a long way. But fundamentally, I don't think it will ever resolve the fundamental problem of too big to fail. Why is that? I'm just not convinced that that's a problem that's capable of resolution. Touching on one of your points in the CME Clearing White Paper about skin in the game also claims that clearing members should contribute more to default funds. Do you think this will really happen? And is there any number that you could put on what a greater contribution would be? Yes, I think it will happen, but probably not to the extent that most clearing members would wish to see. I may get this wrong, but there's something in the back of my head I think, think I've read lately about one bank suggesting that CCPs should put about 10% of their capital in uh, by way of skin in the game. But of course, there are other ways to increase the resources of CCPs. The thing is that we have to face it face the fact that, in truth, most of this kind of firepower, most of the construction of this firewall really comes from the clearing members in some form. So I think what you're really talking about is increasing default fund contributions, which are known in advance and tend to be limited in nature, rather than increasing cash calls on clearing members further down the waterfall, particularly if they're unlimited in nature. But I think the real question is, more generally, why do we require CCPs to put skin in the game? And I think the reason is this. Traditionally, CCPs, well, they've moved from being mutual utilities to private companies which are run for profit. And this can introduce a possible conflict of interest in the way that they operate. Skin in the game is really there to make sure that the interests of the CCP are aligned with those of the clearing members in terms of implementing things like solid risk management. However, if you require the CCP to put too much skin in the game, you risk pushing it into insolvency, something which, as we just discussed before, nobody really wants. You know, as I said, mentioned ISDA very clearly recognized this in their recent white paper. So really, it's about striking that right balance. Yes, you need them to put some skin in the game, basically to keep the CCPs on the straight and narrow. No, you don't want them to put too much skin in the game, because if they fall over, that's in nobody's interest. And my final question is, is the U.S. following a different course than Europe? Not really, is the answer. Dodd-Frank says basically, pretty much the same as Amir in this case, that all standard derivatives must be cleared. And to this extent, the same issues regarding CCP recovery and resolution apply, irrespective of whether or not you're looking at the dates or you're looking at Europe. I think we need to remember the U.S. is part of the G20. Both the CFTC and the SEC 
are members of IOSCO. So there is consistency of view in how CDP recovery and resolution should be treated. Well, thank you very much for your insightful comments, and we appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this DerivSource podcast. Tune in in two weeks' time for more expert analysis on timely topics in the derivatives industry. And feel free to listen to future podcasts via the website, iTunes, or via the DerivSource app. Thank you for listening. Join us next time.